Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Is it on now? There we go. As you come back and are seated, again, just want to encourage you. I know that signing up for a small group is probably scary for a lot of you to show up. Place a lot of faces you don't know. uh, But um, as we often say here, your Christian life is a community project. That's how God intended it. And so I want to encourage you to take a step of faith and boldness and sign up and check out one of these small groups. In seminary, my best friend was a guy named Stephen Jones. Um, Stephen and I grew very close over the three years that I was there. We we played basketball together. We studied together. um, We laughed together. We cried together. One of my favorite memories is on a certain night of the week, we would go to Ozzy's, which was named after Ozzy Smith, if you know who that is. He used to be a shortstop for the Cardinals. And they had free wings as long as you would buy a drink. And so we'd go there and we'd buy overpriced iced tea and we'd have all the free wings. And on this wing bar, there were cucumbers with ranch. And Stephen loved the cucumbers with ranch. And so we're always joking about how he is so looking back to coming back to America to get some cucumbers with ranch. But uh, my friend Stephen, I I miss him dearly. As as many of you know, he serves as a missionary in the UK seeking to share Jesus with the growing Muslim population there. Uh, Just this past week, Stephen sent me an email saying, Dan, I'm praying today that you would feel the sunshine of God's goodness today. Love you, brother. He is such a good friend. Um, A few months ago, I had a a strange dream, one that I never planned on sharing with anyone, much less publicly, but here we are today. Um, in the dream, I was at a bar eating wings, probably eating cucumbers with ranch maybe, and I remember looking down across the restaurant and looking at me was Stephen at another table. And our eyes connected and we lit up and we just ran and gave each other a huge embrace because we were so excited to see each other. You know, right now we, we communicate um, by email and by phone call and by FaceTime, but it's not enough. Uh, he comes home on furlough next year and I'm hoping to go and see my friend Stephen face to face to embrace him. I'm a, I'm a hugger, to laugh with him, to enjoy his friendship and his presence. Have you ever longed for someone like that? Have you ever longed for someone that maybe you got to talk to over phone or again email or Facebook or whatever it might be, Skype, but it just wasn't enough? You wanted to see them face to face. 
Is there anyone that you have longed for like this? Maybe a grandma or a grandpa, a mother or a father, a child or grandchildren. Maybe a husband or a wife, an aunt or an uncle, or just a good friend. In today's passage, some Greek Gentiles come up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they have come to worship the one true God. And as they come into Jerusalem, they find one of Jesus' disciples, the one with a Gentile name, Philip. And, he go, and they come to him and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This word see in the original language of Greek is ido, and it can have uh, multiple different connotations as I think it does in this passage here today. The Thyre Greek Dictionary says that it can mean visual sight, but it can mean far more than that. It can mean not only to see, but to discover, to turn one's attention upon, to examine, to look at, to behold, to know, to regard, to cherish, and my favorite, to experience. Sir, they say, we want to see Jesus. The Greeks came to worship, and their desire was to know and to see and to experience Jesus. Is this not the longing of every human heart, whether we confess it or not, that we are seeking the presence of an invasive, wonderful, loving Savior. If you would please open up to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 27 today. It's page 899 in the red Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Page 1068 on the large print blue Bible and page 1162 in the children's Bible. The event that happens in today's passage happens the Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion, so about five days prior. And it comes just after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so that's where we pick up the true story of that Passion Week. So let's start together. John 12, verse 20 through 27. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today 
because we want to see Jesus. We want to experience his overwhelming presence and love in our hearts and in our life. And so, God, we simply pray that you would help us this day to see Jesus more clearly than ever before. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of our new series, The Passion of Christ. We're starting here in John chapter 12, which is the beginning of the Passion Week of Christ. The Passion Week of Christ is a term that's often used uh, in talking about the final week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. This, This term passion actually comes from a Greek word in the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1 3. When we read in Acts 1-3 that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering or pasho, the passion. And so for Passion Week is basically for Jesus, it's suffering week. And we can see this is on the forefront of Jesus' mind here even in today's passage. Now leading up to this passage, Jesus visited the tomb of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was wrapped in linen. People were gathered to mourn and to grieve over the death of Lazarus. And Jesus comes into this grieving, this mourning, and he says, take away the stone. The people protest against Jesus saying, no, he's been dead for four days. He smells, he stinks. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe that you would, that if you believe you would see the glory of God. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'm guessing in that moment you could hear a pin drop because Jesus is putting it all on the line, isn't he? I mean, if Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus doesn't come out, there is no more ministry of Jesus. Jesus is debunked. We would not know of Jesus today if Lazarus does not come out of the tomb. But then we read, the man who had died came out. Could you imagine being in that crowd? Could you imagine witnessing this? It's, it's what we call a drop-the-mic moment, isn't it? There are many witnesses of this miracle. It goes viral. Jesus' fame grows to an all-time high. A few days later, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the Passover. He receives a king's welcome on that Palm Sunday as they're yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel, as they lay their cloaks on the ground as he comes in. And then in verse 19, if you look there, it's just before our passage. In verse 19, it says this. So the Pharisees, religious people who did not like Jesus, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are getting, gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then we get to our passage today, and we see indeed this is the case that the world is going after Jesus, that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these Greeks are going after Jesus. And so we step into today's passage, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This could refer to all Gentiles, all non-Jews, but Greeks or Gentiles, same thing. Verse 21. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now let me ask you this question. 
how do you think Jesus would respond to this request? If you've never read this story before, let's pretend it's fresh, it's new, maybe it is for you. If the disciples come and say, Jesus, there there are these Greeks, these Gentiles that want to see you. How do you think Jesus would respond? Imagine it's a multiple choice question, okay? It's a test. The test question is, how does Jesus respond when people say they want to see him, okay? Answer A is, Jesus says, sure, I'd love to see them. Bring them to me. Answer B is, you know what? I will go to them. Answer C is, my hour has not yet come. (laughs) Which of those do you choose? A or B, right? Because they're the only ones that make sense. Answer C doesn't even seem to fit with the question that is being asked. But what we will see and discover in this passage is that Jesus is responding to their request to see and experience him in a way that is deeper and more wonderful than anything they could imagine. They wanted to see and experience and enjoy Jesus externally, temporally, But Jesus wanted to give himself to them internally and forever. Friends, do you wish to see Jesus? Do you wish to experience Jesus and enjoy Jesus? Whether for the first time or for the first time in a long time. In this passage, what we discover is that if we really want to see and enjoy and experience Jesus, that Jesus must die. And so must we. Well, let's move into these points. And just as you'll note, that the outline on the screen is, is right. What's in your bulletin is wrong. Things change sometimes on Saturdays. If we wish to see Jesus, Jesus must die. You know, this point seems to be Jesus' finest hour. Jesus raised a dead man. The people welcome him again as king of Israel. And now even Gentiles want to see Jesus. Jesus has become this international phenomenon. And so the disciples go to Jesus. And as we read in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. What does Jesus mean by the hour has come? Well, let me give you a little bit of a backstory. If you go back to John chapter 2, you may remember that, that Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him. They're at a wedding in Galilee, and she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, my hour has not yet come. John five twenty eight, Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. In John 7, Jesus' brothers are encouraging him to go to Judea to show off his miracles, to gain fame amongst the people. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. John 7, after Jesus claims to be the Christ, John notes, he says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, Jesus is teaching that he is the light of the world. John again notes, he says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so throughout the gospel of John, time and time again, Jesus is saying, and John is commenting, that the hour has not yet come. But now some Gentiles come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? The hour has come. What, What is what is the hour that, that wasn't yet, but what is the hour but has now come? Well, it says for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
It is Jesus' hour of glory. It is his glory hour. It is time for Jesus to be lifted up. This is further emphasized by his use of that term, son of man. You may think, oh, this, this isn't a big deal. Like, we're all sons or daughters of men. But, but while Jesus is using this term to identify with his humanity, he's also using it to identify himself with the prophesied Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, and I believe it's up here on the screen, we actually read about this son of man that is to come. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given, listen, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So imagine you're in the place of the disciples, and Jesus says, my hour has come, the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. My hour has come. What are they thinking? They're probably bursting with excitement because finally Jesus is going to claim his kingship. Finally, he's going to come and establish, reestablish a Davidic kingship. He's going to exile the Romans and make Israel great again. But the problem with this is that when Jesus talks about his hour, he is never talking about a political kingdom. When Jesus talks about his hour, he is always referring to his crucifixion. We see this as we read on in verse 24. Let me back up verse 23 and read 24 after. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. He's saying this is true. Listen to it. It may not make sense to you, but it is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I confess to you, I do not know anything about farming for the most part. But what I do know is if you do take a grain of wheat and you leave it by itself, you put it on you know, a table or on a mantle or on a shelf, if you put it there, it will remain alone. But if it is buried into the earth, if it dies, if it decays, it produces much fruit. In fact, the only way, the only way a grain of wheat can produce fruit is to die. There is no other way that it can produce a yield. It is only through the death of that one grain of wheat that life comes to many grains of wheat. At the time of Jesus speaking this, I'm guessing it was confusing to the disciples, but standing on this side of the cross and resurrection, this makes complete sense to us. This is obviously Speaking of Jesus' hour that was approaching in which he would go to the cross, he would die, he would be buried into the ground, and as a result would produce this great harvest. If Jesus does not die, if Jesus is not buried like the grain of wheat, Jesus remains alone. Now you may say, how, how, how does Jesus remain alone? Uh, he has the Father and the Holy Spirit. Those are, right, that's not alone. 
Jesus was an only child, was an only child of the God of the universe. And yet through his burial, through his death, through his resurrection, he has given all of us the right to become children of God. Jesus was the only one to experience the divine intimacy of the fatherly love of the God of the universe. And yet he has given this to us that we might be adopted by that father of the universe. That he may no longer, Jesus may no longer be alone but have many brothers and sisters through his death. John 1 puts it this way. But to all who did receive him. Not, not to some, not to some, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If Christ did not fall to the earth and die like a grain of wheat, he would still be an only child. But he did fall to the earth. He did die. And he has given us life and adoption for all who receive him. I want to introduce you to someone. This is uh, Jemima, a pretty name, pretty young girl. Um, Her mom describes her as clever and funny, compassionate and creative. She's 13 years old in this picture. In March of 2012, Jemima was preparing for her mom's 38th birthday party. When she collapsed, she had a brain aneurysm and died four days later. Jemima decided just a few weeks prior to this to become an organ donor. She donated her heart, her small bowels, her pancreas, her kidneys, and more. Her organs saved eight different lives, including five children. Her death offered life to others but only to those that would receive the gift. Now we may ask, isn't there another way? Isn't there another way these eight people could have been saved? Isn't there a way without sweet Jemima dying that they could live? There was no other way. What about Jesus? The Son of God, the great and compassionate lover of our souls, the one we all long for. Was it, was it really necessary? Did Jesus really have to die to save our life? Couldn't he have done it another way? Couldn't he have just taught us to be better people, more moral people, more respectful people? There was no other way. And that's what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled because he knows that the hour is coming, the hour of God's wrath poured upon him for your sin and mine. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Friends, we may not suffer from heart failure or pancreatic failure or kidney failure, but we suffer from a failure of our soul. Our soul has died within us. As Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And at the cross, Jesus took on our deadness and in his resurrection gave us his life so that we can now see Jesus and be with Jesus and experience Jesus for all eternity. 
And there is no other way possible than through the death and resurrection of Christ. Do you want to see Jesus more clearly? Do you want to see him for the first time and forevermore? You must receive him as the son of God, the son of man, the savior of your soul, as the one who died on the cross for your sin, was buried in the ground and rose again to give you newness of life. Have you received him? Have you received this gift to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God in order for us to see Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to experience Jesus, Jesus had to die. But so do you, and so do I. Verse 24, again, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much Fruit. As we just looked at, Jesus is applying this to his own life, the hour that is approaching. But in the next few verses, Jesus is going to take this one verse, verse 24, and he's going to turn the tables. And he's going to point this verse back at you through several different examples. Verse 25, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 25 is probably a verse that many of you who are familiar with Scripture are familiar with. But this is a verse we should never be comfortable with. Because this is constantly challenging our selfishness. You know, when we slow down and look at the weighty claims of Jesus here, it it should lead us to a whole bunch of questions. Like, what does it mean to love my life? Do I love my life? Why is it bad that I love my life? And how does loving my life cause me to lose my life? Or if you look at the second half of the verse to ask the questions, what does it mean to hate my life? Do I hate my life? Why is that good to hate my life? And why does it allow me to keep my life for eternal life? See, the word life here is used three times in this passage. And the first two times, it is one Greek word, which is suke. And the last time, eternal life, is another word, which is zoe. And so there is a difference between what Jesus is talking about in the first half and at the end of this verse. And so verse 25, again, he says, Whoever loves his life, suke, loses it. And whoever hates his life, suke, in this world, will keep it for eternal life, which is zoe. In the first two cases, the word life is talking about the things of this world. To be supremely in love with the temporal things of this life, whether it be a boat or football or crafts or romance or money or power or fame or whatever it might be. It is a warning against adapting the agendas and priorities and moral codes of this world. It is a warning against living for ourselves and this world instead of for God. James Montgomery Boyce, my favorite commentator, puts it this way. He says, for only when we say no to ourselves do we become capable of saying yes to God. And so receive his fullest blessing. 
This is what Paul meant when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. He meant that he had died to self in order that he might live for God. Or again, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Galatians 6.14. In saying this, Paul meant that his identification with Christ and death made it possible for him to live for Christ and by Christian values and not for the world and its values, end quote. Friends, have you been crucified with Christ? Has the old you been put to death? The old you that captivated by God's things instead of by God himself? Have you hated that life? Have you put it to death to follow Jesus? Verse 26 continues, it says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. To follow Jesus is to follow his teachings, his ways, even his sacrificial life. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is reminding us that you can only serve one master. You can either serve yourself or you can serve Christ, but you cannot serve both. And the less of you there is, the more of you that dies, the more of you that is crucified, the more Jesus invades our heart and our life, the more that we see Jesus and experience Jesus and enjoy Jesus. George Mueller lived in England several generations ago, and he founded a great number of orphanages, and it was extremely successful from a worldly perspective. Many children were cared for, and he did the entire thing simply through prayer. When he was asked why everything was so effective, why everything went so well, how he could do these things, this was his response. He says, there was a day when I died, died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of my brethren or friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. John 11, just a chapter earlier, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Friends, dying is not a pleasant experience. Crucifixion is not a pleasant experience, but this is the path to eternal life. It kills imitation life and begins our one true, real, wonderful life that God has intended for us for all eternity, beginning now. Jesus said by dying to ourselves and living to Jesus, we will be honored before God in heaven. Friends, dying to ourselves and living to Christ is both an initial event, but also an ongoing process. Let me explain it from my own life. The first time I died was on a bus trip from Minnesota to St. Louis. When I gave my life to Christ, when I said, Christ, my life is no longer my own. It belongs to you. And I was so glad and happy. This was the event of dying to self and living to Christ. And it was an event of great joy in my heart and in heaven above. But since that time, living out this reality is very difficult. 
It has been a process because what I keep finding out is that there is more of my life that I have not surrendered to Christ. There is more of my life that maybe I surrendered to Christ at one time, but I have sought to grab back and take dominion over myself. Let me give you another example of how this is a process. I'll give you two examples. Over the past week, uh, last weekend over Labor Day, uh, we went to Trisha's parents' lake house, and it's great joy to go out there. And one day we were out on the boat all day, and we went home and we ate dinner, and we decided afterwards we're going to go and use this gift card and take the boat to this restaurant to go get dessert. And so we get everybody ready, we get everything on, life jackets, all that, we get down to the boat, and I'm asking one of my kids, do you have your sandals? And they're saying, no, I, I didn't know I needed it. And then my wife says, oh, we need sandals? And, and what's going through my head is, uh, yes, when you go into restaurants, you need sandals, right? And, and kind of a sarcastic mind. Now, to her credit, there's outdoor seating, so we'll say that's what she was thinking about, probably was. But I'm thinking, you should know this, right? And, 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 and Dan wanted to say this, to verbalize this, but I'm, I'm, I'm meditating on this passage and I'm asking myself, how does Dan Jackson need to die? And so I asked my wife, do you want me to go get your sandals? And she says, sure. And so as I make the trek up the three stories of stairs, every step a little bit more of Dan Jackson is dying. Or take last night. Last night, our kids are in the sunroom watching TV and we say, all right, it's time to come in, time to go up to bed. And one of my kids comes in, and he sits on the couch in our living room and starts opening up a deck of cards. And I responded in probably the most ungracious manner possible. I started barking at this child saying, what are you doing? Did you not hear us? We said, get up bed. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. They go upstairs. They're brushing their teeth. I know what I got to do. I need to go, I need to repent, but I don't want to. I don't like repenting. Repenting is so hard because I'm filled with a lot of pride, not the good type of pride, the bad type of pride. I don't want to repent. But I go up the stairs and I say, please forgive me for barking at you. And my child says, I forgive you. And a little bit more of Dan Jackson died at that moment. There is a lot of Dan Jackson that still needs to die. A lot. So that I can be filled with the goodness of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, where do you need to die? What part of your life needs to be crucified? If you want to see Jesus in greater glory and greater delight, where do you need to put something to death in order that Christ can fill you and change you and transform you? You know, being crucified is painful, but it is the most wonderful thing in the world. Because what I need more than anything else in the world is less of me and more of Jesus. And that's what happens when we put us to death and fill ourselves with Christ. If we want to see Jesus, Jesus must die. 
and we must die also. Um, back in the 1980s, I remember as a kid seeing this movie on TV called Brewster's Million. Any of you remember that movie? No? No one? All right. Um, just me. It's a great movie. Uh, and basically, the premise of the movie is there's this guy named Brewster. I can't remember his first name. I want to say Lincoln Brewster, but that's an artist. That's not his name. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't remember all the numbers. I actually, this illustration came to me as I was driving here, so I don't have all the details. That's usually how it goes. Uh, God's timing, not mine. But, um, but in the movie, uh, Brewster is, is left something by his uncle who passes away, and it's something like $100 million, something like that. But in order to get the $100 million, uh, there's a stipulation. He has to spend $10 million. And, and in spending this $10 million, he has to do it in a certain amount of time. I can't remember if it was like a week or two weeks or whatever it might be. And he's not allowed to just give it away. And he's not allowed to tell people what he's doing or why he's spending all the money. And so he spends it in all these different ways. Uh, he's like, how can I waste money uh, the easiest? And he's like, I know, I'll run for a political office. And so he runs for political office to spend all this money. And his, his, big, his big slogan is, vote for none of the above. That was what, because he didn't really want to be a politician. He just wanted to get rid of this money. But you see, in order for him to gain the greater prize, the greater riches, he had to get rid of the lesser riches. And looking at this passage, Tim Keller says, you know, the world says the way up is up. But what Jesus is teaching us is that the way up is down. We have to give our riches away. We have to give our life away. And when we give those things away, that's when we find the treasure of Christ. You know, I, I don't know if these Greeks ever actually see Jesus face to face. It doesn't tell us. I, I like to think they did, but I don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Jesus gives a greater promise to see him for us today. And for them there as well. Jesus is pointing forward to his hour because there is a greater experience of Jesus that he wants them to have. In John 16, later in this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples that he's going away. That he's going back to be home with his father in heaven. And others, he's saying he's going to die. And they're sad. And so Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How is it to their advantage? These people that want to see Jesus, that want to hold Jesus, that want to experience Jesus, how is it to their advantage that Jesus goes away? Because if Jesus goes away, he can send the helper, the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of Christ, to not just be around them, but to indwell them. They would not only see Jesus with their eyes and touch him with their fingers, but now they would experience him in their heart. And this is for all who trust in Christ. And none of this could happen if Jesus did not die and if we don't die as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's pray. Lord, our heart and soul cries we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus, the great lover of our soul. 
This is our great desire, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so, God, I pray if there's anyone here who has never seen the beauty of Jesus, that they would see him for the first time. I pray for others here who maybe have seen Jesus and his beauty has faded from their life, God, that they would see Jesus in a new light today, that they would crucify more of their life, die more of themselves, that they might experience more of you and overflow with thanksgiving and joy and delight in your presence. We want to see Jesus. Lord, make it happen in our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen.